Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about home. First, we'll hear how a spontaneous move to Burma turned into a transformative journey of social entrepreneurship. There's a big income gap between what people have and what they need, and we want to close that gap for at least 500 families every single month. Then we'll meet one half of an award-winning design studio duo who put people at the heart of their projects. You need to have that initial interest in, in the human being. They're not just someone who's going to bring your project and money. They're someone you're going to have to work with, someone that you actually enjoy spending some time with. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Sophie Garnier is the founder of Kalinko, a homeware brand that features items from glassware to art, furniture and lighting, all handmade by local artisans in Burma. Back in 2015, Sophie and her husband wanted to move somewhere in pursuit of adventure. And after he received a job offer from Burma, the plan set in motion. Initially, they thought they would stay for perhaps a year or two. But as so often happens, she fell in love with her new home. Although they've since returned to the UK as their family's grown, their adopted home continues to exert a powerful hold and shape so much of how they approach their business. Sophie stopped by Midori House to talk about identifying an opportunity in a country so often overlooked and the challenges of navigating political instability there. She began by telling me about the start of the journey. I actually was doing a job in private equity when I first got there, which was very bizarre for me because I had no background in that at all. But it was a lovely company who invested in sustainable local businesses and I, they found me a, a nice role there. And it was great, but I was the wrong side of the window. You know, I was behind my Excel screen looking out and thinking, well, hang on, this isn't quite, quite what I had in mind. And and my husband and I travelled as much as we could at weekends and obviously did the main, um, the big hitters. But beyond that, we used to go and find sort of weird villages that had no reason to go to, you know. And every time we went anywhere, we found people literally on the side of the road in their homes making beautiful things and not selling them beyond the local market because they have no other access. And that just seemed crazy. There was no route to markets beyond literally the market that is down the road from them. And I thought, well, this is crazy. You know, there's there's a, wo- a world out there looking for things of this quality, of this range, of this beauty, and nobody local is buying them. Like, the local market can't afford them. Handmade stuff is expensive. Stuff off a factory line from China is, is cheap and shiny and new and, and pack it fresh. And there's a sort of cultural, I suppose, preference for that over something that's crusty and old or that's maybe something that their grandparents would have cherished. So there is no local market, yet a lot of the people making these things don't have any other options for works. Given the uh, the situation the country's in at the moment, a lot of them actually have no other options. Mm. So their only skill is to create these things that they make that nobody wants to buy. So big problem, which we thought we'd have a stab at. Mixing. Well, yeah, this is, and I always find this moment amazing because quite often we talk to people where they're in a, a different environment and they identify either a problem or an opportunity or their proximity, something that's interesting. Mm. And it's that moment of not just identifying it or having the instinct or even over a couple of drinks, the slightly fanciful, vainglorious conversation about it, but to then start doing it. Is that the, the missing entrepreneurial X factor and actually you and your husband just 
always had that instinct to not just identify but do or was it something about having been on this adventure together i mean why 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 make the action what what emboldened you to do it um do you know i've never been asked that or necessarily thought about it but there was something in the air out there everybody was just doing things you know i didn't have any friends who were lawyers or accountants or doctors or everybody was setting up a restaurant setting up a you know, logistics business, doing this, doing that. And everybody was having a stab at something. So it felt completely natural to act upon an idea. Like, it had that incredible energy about it. I mean, the the country had just come out of 60 years of hell. The hope was completely infectious amongst anybody, all ends of society. Everybody had had the sparkle in their eye and whether you were an expat or a local or young or old, everybody was, was building something. Was something. In, something was in the air. Something was in the air, yeah. And it, it didn't take much, to be honest, to, to say, well, OK, let's give this a go. Well, just as uh, on a slight tangent then, and you've alluded to this already, actually, so for what you said a moment ago, mm. but with what's going on at the moment, can that irrepressible spirit of optimism and hope how, how readily does that survive these kinds of challenges? You mentioned look, half century or more. Yeah, and it survived. No, no worries. But it had some really, really bleak times. Mm-hmm. Are you confident that those people you've met, the people you know and work mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. they have the wherewithal to overcome these latest sets of challenges and hurdles? God, I hope so. I don't know. Is the is the simple answer? It's it's bleak. It's a really, really, really difficult environment at the moment. M- anybody that's got an option has left. You know, our closest Burmese friends now live in London. The difficulties that existed before remain but they are 500 fold with Mm. with what's going on now the i mean it used to be the 177th out of 195 most difficult country in the world doing business it must be must have fallen down that list now there there won't be um data to prove that in any way yet but it's bloody difficult to do anything at all Mm. like on a domestic level let alone do any business there so i think the hope has definitely dwindled those that can hold on to it and keep it alight like oh god i hope that that stays because there's so much to do there there's so much potential it's it should be the the beating heart of asia like it once was yeah maybe we'll come back to that (laughs) let's let's come back to kalinka then so look back to the uk growing family and a family business all all of those sort of interesting metaphors about building Mm. those things together seem to apply talk to me a bit about then the the journey and the progression because now you work with a vast number of different crafts people there's different expressions of the business of course Mm -hmm. physical and digital and all the rest of it what was the journey like what were the biggest challenges or were there some things that were actually easier than you suspected probably not but um the biggest challenge always was and remains eyeballs like all we need is people knowing that we exist everybody wants to shop sustainably everybody wants to buy the right thing but if they don't know you're there how on earth can they choose you over over a larger company so that's always going to be the big overarching hurdle that we're that we're trying to jump but on a on a granular level oh my gosh we could talk for 10 days on on all the on all the problems i mean everything from you know our warehouse in yangon flooding the electrics being cut the birds moving in and nesting on pooing all over the stock you know we were once told that we couldn't export and it came down to big bags of shredded paper which we used for our packaging and the whole shipment was put on hold for those. And we said, well, what's going on, guys? And they said, well, we don't know what's inside. 
And we said, well, it, it, it's shredded paper. And they said, well, we, we can't be sure. So we had to undo all these bags of shredded paper. I don't know if you've ever taken shredded paper out of a bag, but it goes absolutely Takes a everywhere. while, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. We didn't have, weirdly, anything dodgy in there. It was just no, shredded paper. No seditious materials no, no, printed on there. I mean, all sorts of problems. You can't, like, getting money in and out is a total nightmare. We're going more serious. Also, I mean, living there in itself is a difficult place to live. You know, it's wonderful. The light is extraordinary. The, you know, it sounds so, so sort of basic to say, but it is beautiful. The people are wonderful. It's a it's an extraordinary place. Everything you read in a in a travel magazine is is true. But actually, that's that's really reductive. Like, it, it's a complicated place to live. You know, it's. I always say to people, you kind of feel your full range of feelings every single day living there because it it's so complicated. It's like people say, "How's Burma?" and you're like you know, what's going on in the Middle East. It's a similar, yeah. it's a really similarly difficult question to answer because it's it's complicated. And the same, yeah, the same goes for, for trying to run a business. You you know exactly what you're doing, exactly where you're going, exactly the path you need to tread, regardless of how many minds are on it. But yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's interesting that part of building something that should have longevity is that these things take time and they'll be with you for time. You're... you're and if you talk about craft, that's, you know, it takes a long time to refine one's craft and then hopefully it takes a long time or a lifetime to enjoy the, the, the fruits of those craftspeople. Does it actually help doing the kind of business that you're were trying to run that you you have to operate on a longer term yeah. timeline? Does that I mean it's in some ways it means the profit is further down the line, the resolutions are further down the line, but is it actually a good thing because it sort of accords with the principles that underpin the enterprise? Hundred percent. There's no way you could do this fast. Absolutely no way. There's, I mean, luckily I've got no interest in, in growing this business to sell. That's not, that's not what we're doing. But it doesn't matter if it takes 20 years. I've got my kind of goals that I'm working towards, but it doesn't matter how, how long it takes. And that has to be the way practically because there are so many curveballs every single day that you can't move fast. You have to stop and say, right, OK, well, how are we going to get around this one? And You have to work into your timetable the things you don't know are going to crop up between now and then. You know, it has to be really slow because you can't force it and you can't come up with quick solutions because it's not a kind of place where you can do that. And do you think that there's something interesting around the fact that it's a, a family concern? I'm presumably much longer term then. Mm. If there's not an exit strategy, is there a, I don't know, a kind of dynastic plan? Um, um, so I don't know. How, or do you, do you, how do you look at that kind of time horizon if you're thinking about in 10 years I mean, or in 15 as years? as long as I don't die, hopefully it'll <laughs> be going for a long time. I think I haven't given that any thought, to be honest. I just, I'm working towards, very basically, there's a, there's a big income gap between what people have and what they need. And we want to close that gap for at least 500 families every single month. That is as basic as it is. We know what that looks like monetarily. We know where we are on that roadmap and where we need to get to. And that 500 is is where we feel like we'll have broken the back of what we're trying to do and also where I feel like it will then snowball. You know, once we get to 500, there's nothing to stop you going 5,000. And, 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 and at that point, you really are making a really wide community impact across the craft industry. Well, yeah, and talk to me a bit more about that because this is a you know proper social enterprise and it's obviously, it's the immediate reality for people who then can survive and support their families mm. but it also sustains not just them literally but it sustains these crafts mm. you've already described so elegantly this idea you drive around there are crafts people everywhere mm. again you must get people saying this is a vainglorious ambition or why would you 
Why, 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 why do you? Who cares? Can you do it? Or the, no, the problem's too big. So right, why, why even? Mean, why so. even start? But tell, tell me a bit about how that came together. Was that always as important as finding and distributing these beautiful things? Was the, um, the border work that could be achieved as well? Or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's one and the same as as far as I'm concerned. It's their livelihood, and that's how they survive. And the products that they make are so beautiful that they can create their livelihood through them you know it's it, they're connected as far as I'm aware and there was a time after Covid after the coup that um we were the only people ordering from the hand-blown glass blowers so the kilns were off unless they were working on our order there were 50 families in the in the delta where all the rattans made who were only they only had our orders you know that things dried up so much that even though we are a tiny company we're a blip on the planet and we were sustaining some families and, and we're so we're so far at the beginning of what we're trying to achieve. I mean we're seven years old, but we're nowhere near where we where we want to be in terms of in terms of achievements. But to be so small and to impact those families in that way already is just very energizing on what we could do. And then in terms of the crafts that you're saving at the same time, if you're keeping the kilns on you are actually saving that craft from disappearing. So I d- didn't answer that very well, but they're 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 one and the same. I think. No, no I think that, yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Talk to me a bit. We, in one of your opening remarks, have you talked about the big challenge being just eyeballs and mm. you know people are starved, their attention spans are shorter, mm. and they kind of know they like to do things sustainably, and mm. they kind of know that they're interested in provenance. Mm. But it is highly highly competitive, and now you've got big players. Mm-hmm who have all sorts of economies of scale that they can operate, those levers they can pull, who start to get into that sustainable mm-hmm. space, who also start to do mm-hmm. kind of social enterprise, sometimes well, mm-hmm. other times maybe a little mm-hmm. cynically. How do you how do you win and keep those those eyeballs? I think Is they it... do you a favour, to be honest, the big oh, players, because they, they raise awareness and they get people saying, oh, no, I do care about that, and actually I wonder what else is out there, and actually before I check out a Zara home, let me have a look and see what else I can find, and I think it's it's a. So it's not, in op- it? it's not in opposition at all? I don't, you think well, it's... I don't think so, and I don't think, you know, when you're tiny, you can't compete with them anyway. You know, there's no pretending that we're in any way on the same level, so it's more just we exist, how can we make sure everyone knows that, and make sure that at the point of, of checkout, they know they have the option and they can choose you. That was Sophie Garnier, the founder of homewares brand Kalinko. You can learn more about the business and its commitments to the brilliant makers it supports in Burma by heading to kalinko.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Penilla Lint is the co-founder of Lint and Almond, an interior and product design studio specialising in high-profile boutique hospitality projects. She's also the design director at her eponymous studio, which she founded in 2018. From a young age, Penilla honed her hands-on skills delving into sewing and fashion design. That journey ultimately led her to interiors design and a practice influenced by her Scandinavian and Thai heritage. With more than 15 years of experience working for renowned brands and collaborating with industry leaders, she co-founded Lint and Almond with architect Richie Almond to take on bigger challenges. Penilla stopped by Midori House and began by telling me how she and Richie integrate learnings from their varied experiences into their joint venture. He obviously comes with his wealth of experience and knowledge from also having worked in the industry as an architect. 
and I come with my specific background, then we together need to react and adjust to our current situation and what it is we're then together building. I also have my own separate company where it's just me leading and running it, and it's a bit of a bigger team in that, so I'm very much also influenced by the team I've got, and each person as an individual will challenge me back as well. So I am still going back in time and trying to bring out what worked and what didn't work, but also now I feel I've I've cut the umbilical cord of my of my past and am now fully fledged in my own kind of developing of a new platform. Yeah, yeah. A well, new, a whole new a, sort of approach a, a, to, yeah, to, do, to doing to, things. Well, and, yeah. and tell me about how, how much, I guess it's, it's helpful maybe for our listeners to anchor that story a little bit in specific. So if we yeah. go back to one of your, I think, pretty early awarded, rewarded, recognised projects, something like Hotel Sanders, for example, yeah. in Copenhagen, which probably listeners might be familiar with, lauded in 2017, 18, yeah. that yeah, kind yeah. of period. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that specific project. How How elegantly does that represent some of the values and, and ideas that you're you're talking about because it's quite a good embodiment of them it seems to me so hotel sanders richie and i we set up our company based on winning that project in 2015 so our company we formed 2015 and that obviously has become a very well known obviously it has become a very well known hotel and has been awarded Best European Hotel and Best Renovation at the Ahead Awards. It's won numerous Condé Nast Traveller Awards. But that's also due to our client being very good at, at making sure that people got to know about the existence of the hotel. And from a business perspective, we took what we had learned from previous jobs, but also the skills that we might have as individuals. So Rich, again, being the architect, having that sort of background, but also he has manufacturing he has a manufacturing facility up in the northeast and so he understands a lot of how things are being made produced the practicalities about that i came from so house where i was working at the time when our client got in touch and when you work there or at the time when i worked there you were very much given one of the projects or a few of them a budget and then literally go make this happen this is your team the team was there was architects or interior designers, FFE designers, and there was an in-house build and development team. So everything was done in-house, and you had to stick to the budget that was allocated to that particular project. So in a way, from working there, I don't think if I had not if I hadn't worked there, I don't know how much confidence I would have, probably would have had some, but <laughs> I definitely had some very good skills that I could bring with me. So when we did the hotel, we, we very much approached it the same way as I was working on projects at Soul House, which was we sat with the full, the client showed us and shared the budget. We could then define and determine with them how the money was best spent on the interiors. And we very much did everything as if it was an in-house team. Then when it comes to the interior or the, the design aspect of that project, of course, that was grounded in Copenhagen, but the brief was also to make an international hotel which would feel exotic in some sense for the locals, but also when people from outside Denmark came, they still had to have a sense of the Scandinavian vibe. I wanted to ask yeah. you a bit more about that because I think mm. that's that's something that I think in a lot of the projects, uh, architecturally and from a design point of view and an interior point of view, that Monocle holds in particularly high regard is that funny 
unique quality of something that is familiar and at the same time different and exotic and yet reassuring. I don't know. It it, it, it sounds like things in opposition, but you guys seem to be pretty adroit at doing that. Do you think that those things are in in attention, bringing in the familiar but the exotic? Or I guess it's kind of second nature maybe almost to you to do that. Yeah, I think it's about creating spaces that are inviting and give you a sense of security and calm and how do you do that you I don't know if it's just something I have that's obviously a born talent or a way of understanding people and it's understanding behavior some sort of emotional reaction to how we all move through spaces and what's nice and what's not nice for instance here it's really nice your table has got a dn so it's rounded corners Stuff like that makes it less... A lot of thought went into <laughs> yeah. that. From the but, state, um, yeah. yeah, I think it's it's a mixture of... And you pull from your own background. Obviously, there's a brief... Our client, he had a beautiful home. He had a very good sense of style and knew what was very homey. And, and I use that word homey because otherwise it'd be the word hyglid, which is Danish. But, you know, it's like that thing of being inviting and cosy and mm. warm and democratic somehow. Well, no, and interestingly, you said straight away, talking of being democratic with your design, the first thing you said was it's about people and how they engage. And I think, I don't know, I don't want to sort of draw you into criticising others who practice your trade, but sometimes maybe the people who are going to use and occupy these spaces are not top of the list of priorities because you get a design ethos that's maybe more about the design than about the people. That does happen on some big projects. Yeah. And this is yeah. why yeah. this is a successful project because you yeah. put the people first, yeah. right? Yeah, and we were we were also given the opportunity to really take part and we were listened to and our client took a gamble on two people who had not formed a company yet but he wanted to to somehow work with someone who hadn't already defined their own brand and their own ethos so that this could become something that we between the three of us would create together mm. and i think that's what happened it became a small democracy that's even what we called it if two agreed and the third didn't well Boo-hoo, you're, you That's know. how it goes. Yeah, so yeah. it's yeah, it's also about being given the opportunity to be fully trusted or as trusted as much as possible by your client, mm. which is not always the case. I no, think. and I, I wonder then, in terms of day-to-day projects, both in Linda Normand and in the, your in Panilla Lynn Studio, yeah. is it one of those things where you can kind of tell first introduction, first meeting, first phone call, certainly first proper brief. This is right for us or it isn't is it what do you have that yeah. kind of instinct 100%. for it I have it with, uniformly yeah I will I won't say in the first five minutes but I'll spend time speaking with a potential client meeting with them asking to see what sort of style they're already attracted to I mean we're lucky a lot of a lot of our clients now will come and say I mean a lot will always say oh we love Hotel Sanders okay they've already seen something we've done or with Penillion Studio, those I've seen other residential projects that we've done and go, oh, we really love that. And so, of course, over time, you start building a portfolio of, of cases where someone doesn't need to show me a full Pinterest board for me to, you <laughs> yeah. know, be convinced that we're going to align. They can just go, well, I just love what you do. And I'm like, OK, well, that's great. That's a good starting start. point. Yeah. And then there's obviously other questions such as time frame, budget, whatever that needs to come in, which are a bit more boring. And then I think it's a personality thing. So it's the same if you go out and meet someone. Essentially, you need to, well, basically, most of our projects take one, two years, averagely. So you need to get on. 
Mm. You need to have that initial interest in, in the human being that's in front of you. And they're not just someone who's going to bring your project and money. They're someone you're going to have to work with and want to hang out with. Not personally. I mean, we keep it very professional, but someone that you actually enjoy spending some time with. And that initial feeling and judgment, you have to be quite good at at kind of kneeling, I think. Yeah, otherwise you can be wasting a lot of time, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the dream project. What does that look like? Do you, do you have in your mind a, a notional, hypothetical example of the perfect client with the perfect project? Or are you always feeling like <clears> the phone could ring or someone could come through the door and that could be that? What Did yeah. you have a sense of what that perfect project looks like or is it something you just have to kind of tilt at in the abstract? I don't think I really yearn to have a perfect project. I like a challenging project. It should have a new aspect that we've not tried to work within before or say it's a bigger scale and as you say as we as we grow and become more successful maybe there's going to be more pressure and and even managing that managing how to structure a project structuring a team that I think is what again fuels me I need to have that challenge otherwise if it becomes maintenance I'll just step out and do something else a perfect client would be someone who could quite early on understand that the trust is needed to be given to the designer and that we will in all instances be the people who will run the extra mile because it's our name and it's our passion that's being created so we will most likely not be the most expensive consultant on the project or be the ones trying to outmaneuver or do anything that's a bit dodgy and I think also transparency in in budgets and transparent and and good communication and what's the aspiration if the aspiration changes throughout the process to be fair and have a new kind of catch up on it because we end up doing a concept to begin with and then we want to carry that through and what happens is people evolve especially when they're not designers themselves so they haven't they haven't tried all the flavors yet but they thought they knew that they just wanted a vanilla and then all of a sudden they actually want rocky road and whatever and then we are going down that road and actually slowly the the concepts move somewhere else. so the perfect client someone who can communicate well and understand that things might change and if they change that's fine and then also the trust aspect but giving us a bit of challenge and being involved and coming in their input, I think, is really important. What's most exciting as you look forward? And you can be as specific as you like about specific projects. I don't know which ones you can reveal to us mm, on the yeah. uh, the programme, Panilla. But what, what are you most excited about as we look ahead? I don't know, short term, medium term, even quite long term. I don't mind. What kind of gets you most excited when you're thinking about it? It's exciting that I feel we've I've finally gotten to sort of a new plateau of running a business where the team's really strong and... I've got some core team members who've been with me for a while and they kind of get it, they know it, they've seen the development of the company and what it takes to deliver certain projects at a at a high level. And I'm excited to then have these people become bigger parts of the company, us taking on bigger projects or different challenges and honing in our skill and becoming better and better at our craft and you know, also streamlining some processes. This sounds super boring, but this is where the business side has come business, in. It's a business program, but yeah, it's fine to get but into it's, the detail. It's, which I never, you know, as a designer, I've not studied anything that even touched upon anything business-like. So that's, again, the next challenge for me is, like, how do I, how does this machine, how does it keep going? What sort of oils should it have? Like, what should I feed it with? What should I not? And, and 
this is what's I think next year is going to be really interesting. I definitely think the team's going to grow a little bit more. I think we're going to be in a place where we'll have quite a lot of solid projects done that we can show so that when new clients come in, we can confidently say, well, this is what we can do and this is how we're going to do it. And yeah, I, I really want to start practicing that new level in the next year, two years, and then again, we'll probably be at another level in three years' time. That was Penilla Lind, the co-founder of Lint and Almond. You can learn more about the brand and its work by heading to lintalmond.co. And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka, available every Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer, with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to the magazine too and read more about better businesses every month. You can always follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team, reach out to Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening.